Today we are talking to Brendan, the CTO of Sentinai, and we discuss having a diverse set of viewpoints within your company, building a recruitment process that is self-sustaining, and saving time by keeping your development processes in-house. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Yeah, I, I want to. I actually want to know. I read a lot of biographies too. Oh yeah, um, yeah. It's funny. Uh, my parents, you know, they have no idea what to get me uh, these days. So a lot of a lot of things about uh, famous engineers and stuff like that. You get the Elon Musk one? I have not gotten that one. Oh, I highly suggest it. I'll have to I'll have to put it on the list. These days I don't get uh too much time to catch up on my backlog. What you you roll with Audible? Uh I yeah, I really don't. I uh I prefer the printed books. But it so, gives you that ability to hear the you know, you, so you don't have to be sitting down and reading. Yeah. So like no, in that's, the car that's true. Like that. You know what? I, the problem is I find I have a lot of trouble uh, on the, like the concentration side. Like I'll, I'll just wind up doing something on my phone. <laughs> like Candy Crush? Yeah. More like checking my email, <laughs> looking at GitHub. <laughs> it's like the, the constant worry is like, you know, what what's going on in the organization? And uh, can I stop something bad from happening? <laughs> Okay, Batman. <laughs> uh, so, do you? What do you think of Slack? Do you th- I was reading an article the other day. This guy was talking about how it's connected us like never before, but it's stressing out a lot of engineers and creating a lot of productivity issues with the on-demand access to everyone. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I had to get rid of a lot of my Slack groups, but internal one, you know, internal Slack doesn't seem to be much of a problem. We actually use it so little. Um, you know, we use it to communicate, but we we don't have like 250 channels. So it's, uh, um, I, I think it hasn't been much of a distraction for people. So we, we actually use it a lot for file transfer. Yep, we do too. Yeah, I use that. We copying and pasting to the team and file transfer is is one of the biggest uses of Slack for us. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have like like we have a few, you know, channels around things like sports or or music, but it's like one or two posts a day. Ooh, what type of music you like? Oh, I'm all over the place. Uh lately I've been really into uh Scandinavian black metal. I right, feel so for the interview I'm going to write down Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, my producer guy, he just like did the rock symbol. He's he was just talking about Scandinavian black metal like three days ago. Oh, that's great. It's because yeah. I, I have a lot of friends who are musicians. We actually have a slack uh among all my you know like childhood friends that where we just keep each other kind of up to date and uh we exchange music a lot, but a couple of them are musicians and I think they play so much music they, they only get interested in really, really weird things. 
Yeah, you know what? I actually have a friend, Ryan, and he, big time musician. I'm a musician as well, right? But he's getting really into it. So then he started to get really off into this like strange sort of like funk mix stuff. And it's it's cool oh, yeah. because it's technically correct. But like when you listen to it, it's like, this is not enjoyable. <laughs> Yeah, I, <laughs> half the stuff, half the YouTube videos on our on our like friends music channel, it's uh, it's all stuff with like five thousand views and hard to listen to. <laughs> That's a Friday night for you, right? Exactly. It's like talking to my wife about single responsibility principles. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> So I saw that you had this data science query engine and right when I saw that I was like so excited to talk to this guy because being able to collect all that sensor data and filter through it rapidly, like the task should not be learning how to write the complex query. The task should be like going in and just getting the information you need. That's absolutely true. Um, that's a very succinct way to put it. We have trouble to this day, you know, a few years in with messaging with organizations sometimes because a lot of them don't realize that it is a problem because they don't actually ask their data scientists. Yeah, well, like, what's the, what's the conversation to have, Brendan? Hey, there's a tool that, like, replaces your job. Should we implement it? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, we actually tried that with... Uh, with data engineering teams in the embedded in IT departments. And we found they really didn't want to, you know, implement a tool to replace their job. It was, it was definitely, it's like, they didn't even like parts of their job, but our messaging was, was so much about automation of a manual job that it, I think it scared a lot of people. But uh, then we went, went and talked to data scientists and they were like, Oh, that's, uh, you know, my biggest problem is, IT has this terrible system they implemented to store the data. They give me like a, a weekly dump of SQL server data and, or they right. have like an internal API on S3 buckets and we have to parse it all ourselves. So we have shadow infrastructure in the cloud. <laughs> and no docs, by the way, you can just get it off the HTTP request. <laughs> you can just guess oh, and check, oh, right? Yeah. You just look at no the logs, docs. figure it out. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> nobody really, I, I think people have, in most industries, come to realize the value of the of their data for uh, you know future success as a business, but it's it's hard kind of crossing that chasm between that realization and saying like we're going to take specific steps to improve our business processes using data or predict and prevent failure. It's it's such a mental leap for them that there's a lot of education involved. Yeah, so have you tried the the messaging of um, we're taking care of the boring stuff so you can build cooler stuff on top of it? We definitely have. And it, it definitely speaks to data scientists. Uh, I think it's a, it's a good kind of messaging for data scientists. For business owners, we're finding that they're most concerned about failure, not about boring stuff. Failure and how? Um, failure of data science projects. So they're worried if they hire a data science team to do this big, you know, an initiative around becoming data driven, that initiative will fail because they're not prepared for it. And therefore they will have wasted a lot of time and money. 
Yeah. So then that becomes a sales thing, right? Absolutely. So now it's up to you to say, yeah, now it's like, you have to say, look, you didn't get to where you are by being scared to try new things. You got to where you are by expanding and trying new things and growing. This is not the time to, you know, recoil back and be scared of something new. This is the time to say, Hey, there's something new. This is an opportunity. We have to try it or our competitors are going to pass us by. This is something that needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually we found the best positioning to be that we make, uh, enterprises data science ready. And, and oh, basically like the idea that we just by implementing us as a uh, repository for all of their uh, sensors and metric data that, that they drastically reduce the risk and can hire a data science team without fear that they won't even be able to get started. Oh, so you're, you're, you're selling. Ah, I love it. So that's, that's a brilliant way to, to position the product, right? You could yep. amplify their fears now. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you're gonna fail. This is you gotta fail. You gotta fail if you don't train, man. You need a training program. This is what we do. Here you go. I know all, all our slide decks are about fear now. <laughs> Media company. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. All right. So is this this is what you're most excited about right now? This uh, this data science query engine is that where you're spending most of your day? Yeah. So it, it definitely is. I mean. I think I, actually, I think it's a little higher level than that. It's a, that's a means to an end. But I, you know, I've spent uh, the past ten years, you know, going between research and industry in industrial machine learning, and uh, there's this, I, I think, general concept that has had a lot of different names over the years. Uh, from complex event processing to digital twin to sensor fusion that really encapsulates the, the kind of value that can be created with sensor-driven automation. And you know, enabling that in the future is, is really where we're trying to put all of our efforts in. So you know, even, even looking at the R&D efforts of data scientists, that's a stepping stone to enabling uh, full, you know, aut uh, autonomy, both in the factory or in city optimization or in logistics networks. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I'm like geeking out over here. I'm, I'm not, I'm like listening to you talk about this while looking at your like site about all the, like the example code of like turbine equals false. If weather's cloudy, I'm like, Oh man, why does this make me so happy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. I, I started out actually doing this, um, in research for, uh, government applications where we would have telecommunications data and a bunch of, uh, other kinds of data. And we would have to synthesize all of that into intelligence that could be used to uh, essentially prevent disasters, usually you know, regarding existential threats in foreign countries. And uh, the amount of data that needed to be synthesized and, and run uh, or put into the simulations in the supercomputer clusters was just so massive. It, it changed my outlook on, uh, on, on what a really interesting, world-changing problem is to solve. And, and I went from thinking about peer-to-peer -peer file sharing all of the time and, and how to do that better to like we can solve massive problems if we can better combine different models, different sensor data, different 
uh, intelligence to actually you know, be better at predicting the future and, and you know, effectively in doing that, reduce the dimensionality to uh, increase the, ch- the uh, you know, fidelity of our predictions. And, and so I've sort of, for the past 10 years, kind of, it's become my, my kind of mission. So are you working, like a lot of the companies, you know, when cloud came out, everybody got real, all the marketing departments went crazy, right? Yeah. Cloud, we're going to say everything, the cloud, cloud, cloud. and then you get the machine learning and AI and everyone's all pumped up about that. Well, I've seen a lot of the IOT and like the enterprise stuff with IBM, some different companies like that. They're like, we're the IOT cloud. Um, how, how do you guys, like, how do you see that? Uh, you know, it's for us, it's actually useful because it's a very partner uh, driven environment and all of those IOT cloud solutions are um, really focused around asset management and connectivity. So they actually don't have a very good story for how you go from raw data to actionable insight. And so we actually utilize uh, all of that, that marketing they put out there to figure out who to go after for partner relationships. Do you have a partnership with IBM? No, not IBM. Oh, I'm friends with the one of their people that does this at uh, IBM's IoT div- cloud division. If you want That's, me to introduce you, oh, they, yeah, that'd be cool. That's uh, in Germany, right? I am not sure, but I talked to her on LinkedIn. No. <laughs> <laughs> like we, uh, I was commenting, I was commenting one day on like the mayor or the chief technology officer of uh, New York City, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, what's up? We were just talking about some geeky thing right and we're going back and forth and i click on his name I'm like oh dude he's like the cto of new york city that's kind of cool we shot him on the show so then this other uh girl chimed in to our conversation and i was like oh who's this and it was she was like some head of something and the ibm iot so i said oh she looks really cool i was reading about her past i was like she's really smart so i said hey you want to do a 15 minute call and so we jumped on a call and i was talking to her and she was like really sharp and they do all sorts of stuff with, um, they, there's like a, it's like a small team, you know, like Alexa and all these teams, yeah. they're like not as big as you think. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually kind of amazing how small the, the teams in practice are around what are big marketing initiatives. Right. Like we talked to the Microsoft team that does their, their devices, like their HoloLens and their Cortanas and everything like that. Yeah super smart and they they transmit information and they move really fast and i i'm just like it's cool to interact with them yeah i think it's actually because well, uh, i oh no, go ahead no it's just that i usually previously had been at, interacting with companies where i just talk directly to the cto right or i talk directly to the um like the owner right and because it's usually like startup or mid-level. But then when I started working with these really large organizations, I saw how they kind of quarantine their little projects, but there's also communication between them into these. Essentially, it looks like a distributed cluster. And then I thought to myself, I'm like, you know, this is so smart, right? Because it looks exactly like how if you were to make a visual representation of an application I wrote. (laughs) It's like, I guess this is the way to scale, like law of Demeter style, right? Like, it's smart. I I think it's it's totally true. And if you look at... Uh, you know, kind of some of the classic uh, management literature. There's, there's really like only so many people that you can manage leading a, a particular product, and and I think the successful uh, uh, projects that we see are are really 
you know, small and focused because of that. And they've externalized all of the functions that are not core to what their actual uh, process is. Exactly. It's like when you're watching the Steve Jobs movie, the people in the room actually making the core device, there's like less, there's like five, six. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to know about, you've got um, Spanish word for size is what? For size? Yeah, Tala. Oh, is that true? Did you not know that? I did not know that. Yeah, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I'm sorry. I thought you had this like whole sweet story about like size and like teamwork and like knowledge base and like that's why you called it Tala. I was giving you the setup, buddy. (laughs) Oh, man. So that's actually funny. We, um, that's, it's kind of funny because I see no connection uh, to to Tala (laughs) in that. Uh, you know what it is? So I just assume everything's made up because when, when we named Sense and I, we, uh, we spent like three weeks looking for a .com that was pronounceable. And, and so we were just making up word after word. So I, if somebody has the .com, I just assume they made it up now. So you, that's, that's, that's the story of Tala. Well, Tala is actually an interesting story because uh, Tala is... It's kind of the story of what is what could be right and what is wrong with the investor ecosystem in Boston. Um, yeah, I, I've been here for for quite a while, and uh, I, I co-founded the the venture fund Hyperplane uh, because it's such a hard thing to raise a capital in this city to solve uh, hard problems where you're where you're effectively doing. Kind of a moonshot effort, and we met uh, Tala's uh, founder and CEO Rob May, um, kind of in the process in a co-working space when he was starting up, and he was just exiting his previous company that had just been acquired, and he was so much like the founders we wanted to bet on uh, that we we just essentially you know right there made the decision that. Uh, we're, you know, after like two meetings, we're going to bet on this guy. Uh, you know, none of this classic Boston stuff about needing a business plan or, a, a, you know, a use of proceeds. We're just going to, you know, make the bet right then. And, and we had actually a lot of success in our first fund making bets like that. And I wish more uh, venture funds in Boston would kind of be more risk taking like in the Valley. Well, you know, that's one of the reasons, that's one of the excuses to actually have capital like that if you have a business that's a straightforward here's your customer if you provide the solution they will buy it then you can just go directly to that person and use get them to jump on board your project and sell them and then use that cash to actually produce your product and you can essentially grow without a huge capital injection or possibly no capital at all but when you're doing something like science or when you're doing something that's like crazy moonshot, historically, that's the when you go get the capital. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I feel like uh, investment firms, uh, I think, become more conservative over time. It, or, you know, as they grow, as they have more successes, more wins, they don't want to have a loss because they may not raise another fund after that. Uh, so I, I think they've stagnated. Yeah, it's like the attorney that doesn't want to take the case because he wants his or her 99% win rate, you know? I think it's exactly the same thing. That's also why many funds move upstream 
as well as they grow, they'll start investing Bs or Cs because they don't want to invest in riskier deals anymore. Valid point. Um, are you actually in Massachusetts? I am. Ooh, nice. So you're you're on premise with your whole team. Yes, I am. And then that's working out pretty well, right? It is. It works out amazingly well for us. Uh, it, it to the point where we were looking at hiring uh, some remote workers, and our employees asked us, our, our engineers specifically asked us not to. That they prefer working face to face, whiteboarding, doing all that. The amount of time you save in the communication of being in the same room as the person when you're communicating an idea, especially when you're doing something that's moonshot style or hasn't been done, it is in like so valuable. You save so much time by having everyone there. I think that's that's right. And it matches kind of my experience. And uh, there was a time when I lived in Boston and commuted uh, to Connecticut to uh, do distributed sensor networks research at Yale. And uh, my experience was always that, you know, despite working harder on my remote days, I would get a heck of a lot more done on my, uh, on my onsite days. Absolutely. So have you been, you've been advising startups recently? Yeah. So I, uh, after, after the, um, so I was part of a research lab at Yale and, and we spun out uh, a, a couple companies from that lab. One of them got acquired. And as soon as we got acquired, I, I we were acquired by this, basically uh, this energy company that was, it became a quite a, you know, nine to five job post acquisition. So I started mentoring startups at uh, the Harvard Innovation Lab and at uh, um, various places like Techstars and Lean Startup Machine and, and such, uh, you know, I, I basically as a way to pass the time. And uh, that I, I've tried to continue <laughs> that, especially in uh, I, I teach entrepreneurship classes to students who are interested in entrepreneurship because uh, in the late 90s, I started my first internet business and there was really no support for a teenager trying to start a business uh, of that kind back then. And, and so I've always felt strongly about uh, you know, giving back because it's not impossible for a teenager to create uh, a good online business or software product. It's just that the material, the information you know, an insight hasn't been out there. So the uh, nonprofit that I teach for uh, is very focused on enabling uh, people to get started with entrepreneurship, or, you know, earlier in their lives. I love it. I was starting when I was 13 years old and it was incredibly difficult from, I was so happy. I'm, I'm early thirties. I was so happy when PayPal came out because I could do business <laughs> online. <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. PayPal. I was like, thank you, Elon. Yep. It was, it was. Have you seen, have you seen his uh, flamethrower? I have. And I was very tempted to buy one, but my wife wants to buy a house. So uh, I think I'll, I'll be putting away everything towards down payments rather than a $500 uh, torch. <laughs> <laughs> what are you really excited about? right now today like what are you pumped up about that's happening at the organization you know i i think there's two two things we just hired our first sales director and it's really changing how we think about product marketing and enterprise sales and the fact that it's not the you know founders that are out there doing a lot of the sales uh now or or that we're 
taking a back seat and letting an expert drive. It, it's really exciting to see that evolution in the organization. Uh, so, so that's nice. And then um, the second thing is I'm really excited about the challenge of building a uh, highly skilled uh, functional programming team uh, around you know, distributed systems and machine learning, because it's an area that, you know, it's always tough to, to recruit functional programming people because there's a lot fewer of them. And it's always tough to recruit people who are experts in distributed databases or machine learning. And so the challenge of actually combining that and, and kind of having people lean on each other's strengths because there's no unicorn out there who's an expert in all of it is it's a, uh, it's a really interesting one and it, it's exciting to kind of uh, to kind of build a small team that's highly focused. So how are you filling your pipeline with potential candidates? Like how do you keep people in front of you and how do you make the decision about who to pull on? Yeah. So, um, one thing that we, we do is we get everybody on the team involved. You know, it, it's sort of, uh, you know, recruit your own coworkers, uh, <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, and, and yeah, everybody's excited about what we do. Practically all of our engineers uh, actually moved to Boston to, to join the team. So, so when, you know, they're not afraid to go and recruit people from, from elsewhere, <laughs> But we also spend a lot of time. I think there are specific areas where, you know, in recruiting, you can you can kind of have a high impact for less work. And it's it, I would say uh, the angel list recruiting has been a godsend uh, for that because uh, it, there's a lot less noise than uh, you know all the other job boards and, and job postings. You don't get you know you don't put an ad saying you know, specific technology required and get 50 people who have five years of enterprise Java experience that has nothing to do with what you posted applying. And and so that's a, that's been a huge time saver. But the other thing is we go where the functional programmers are. So we go to the meetups, we go to conferences, uh, you know, we think about sending whole team, the whole team to strange loop. Uh, you know, we, uh, do things post specifically where we find functional programmers hang out. And, you know, I, we've even sponsored pod podcasts that we knew, uh, functional programmers have listened to. And at least one person on our team joined because he thought that meant we must be a legit company. <laughs> That's what it means though. Yeah. So, so it's, um, I think it's, uh, yeah, you know, it's such a, an ensemble of, of, you know, methods that you have to employ when, when there are just relatively fewer people uh, out there. But the baseline of, uh, of, of how experienced and, and uh, how knowledgeable the candidates we get are is, um, is way above my last company when we were mainly you know, trying to recruit you know, general, uh, Python engineers and, uh, and having to kind of wade through a bunch of people who, you know, barely knew Python, uh, but knew it enough to say they'd apply for it in a job. Yeah. That's, you want, you want people that like know it. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely it. So you know, we found our magic formula is just say that we're doing distributed databases, machine learning and Haskell and, and people just kind of apply. You gonna go? You ever think about recruiting authors of books on the subject? 
We actually, uh, her first employee was an author. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so we, we thought about that early, like recruit people who lead meetups. Um, like one of our engineers is a co-organizer of the local uh, Elm meetup. Um, so uh, it helps kind of getting a pipeline. I mean, we don't hire that fast because we're a believer in, in small teams, but that does give us the opportunity to be really picky about who we hire. So I hire fast, but on a, like a come hang out with us for a week or two and see how it goes basis, right? Like I want people to come hang out and see how, see yeah. how they work because you can't tell, even if you have three interviews for an hour, you really can't tell that, per, like know that person the same way you can as if you just work with them in the office for a week. Oh yeah. Especially, especially if you're trying to do like whiteboarding sessions or code interviews, it's just it's just hard. And I, I think the, you know, the challenge when it comes to these more niche skill sets is that you really wind up having to fly a lot of people into the office to spend a day. And we've done that, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, with a number of people, but we also, we've had one of our engineers actually asked us if he could just come try working with us for, uh, I think it was three weeks that he wanted to come. And we thought, eh, why not pay for it? So, uh, so it actually, uh, I think it's worked well to, to have people come hang out and we've gotten a much better sense than in technical interviews. Yeah. Well, you get the person that really wants to be there too, especially if you're getting people calling you up saying, Hey, I want to, I just want to come work for you for like three weeks. I just want to show you what I can do, man. When I get that call, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be so happy, right? Like I'm putting it out yeah. there because those, those people aren't hungry. I get people that won't even show up for job interviews. I'm like, Oh man, come on. You know? Wow. I, I haven't had that one happen, but, uh, I can, I can imagine. Not, not on our, not on the programming side. Oh yeah. Oh, not on the programming side. Okay. Yeah. Not yeah. on the programming side. Oh yeah. We've, we've definitely had sales interviews with people blowing us off. So <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, yeah, some, you know, someday I hope to, you know, have kind of built a recruiting process that is self-sustaining so that I'm, I'm not like at the forefront of it every day, spending an hour on it. But, uh, yeah, I, I still feel like we're, we're at that stage where every new person changes the culture in the company enough that, um, we, we are trying to be careful also, you know, really focus on having a diverse set of viewpoints in the company. Um, you know, it's, it's so easy to hire a bunch of people that it's like, well, I, they're like me. So they're, I know they're going to do well. Well, I'm always trying to find my clones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, that's what I did at first. And now we've been trying to find people, um, like I, I would say find people who make me slightly uncomfortable from a like skill set standpoint, like they're either taking on skills that I feel uncomfortable with and they've like embraced learning those skills in addition to programming, or they, you know, are experts in something that, that I actually, you know, dislike or maybe discount the importance of, but, you know, intuitively or, or maybe, maybe not intuitively, but just, uh, you know, in theory, you know, it's, uh, it's important even if I hate it. Yeah, it's always good to find that person that like just knows a little bit more than you too. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, absolutely. That's the 
that's the, the like the one constant interview question that I always try to in even in a first call um, try to find that one thing that somebody you know especially in, it's something in relation to what we do because I'm so, I have some level of expertise in all of the areas that that we work in uh, I I want them to like go in and and that part where I think they must know the most like demonstrate how much more they know than me. Yeah, that's how you go through that dance of validating an expert. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, we try to not have too much overlap in in expertise. Like, there's a general baseline we look for, but um, you know, we have people with 20 years of experience on uh, on kind of like being deep in the ops community, and people who are category theory experts and mathematicians, and and you know, getting getting those expertises together has yielded for us in practice. Um, I don't know if we even you know really realized it at the time, but it's it's yielded some amazing insights uh, from kind of like cross field pollination. And how big is the team currently? So we're uh, twelve people right now. And how many of those are engineers? All but three. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> and and um, we have one person who doesn't code. So <laughs> what, who, Who's that? Our director of sales. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that, that could slide because the people that bring money in, they don't have to necessarily code. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's funny because... Uh, our director of sales actually has experience in selling technology products uh, that are kind of uh, kind of like ours, maybe not the same kind of thing, but you know, similar in complexity to sell into an IT organization or into a business unit, and uh, and so that's been great. And uh, the rest of us, you know, even even my co-founder, our CEO, um, you know, he was an MIT CS major, and and he kind of went out of CS into venture, uh, and, and, you know, went kind of that route with his life. So he doesn't code much anymore, but I, I always laugh at the fact that literally everybody on our team has a, you know, CS or CS like degree, except for our sales director. <laughs> so I have a question. I've got to, I've got to, I got to know this one. If, if Elon Musk like text you today, right? It's like, hey, Brendan, like, come over to my house and hang out. The first question is, would you go? Uh, yes. <laughs> All right. Now you're at his house. You're hanging out with Elon Musk. Uh, you asked to shoot the flamethrower. He says no. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> um, so, and, so then you, you bring your Boston Dynamics spot on him and you six spot on him, right? No, <laughs> no but the, he's got a time machine, right? And you get to go into the time machine and talk to yourself 10 years ago and give yourself one piece of advice. What would it be? Oh, man. If I had to give myself... So 10 years ago, it would be not doing research is the right decision. Entrepreneurship is the right Ooh. thing. And... Join, be very, very, very careful about which projects you work on and companies you join. Optimize for how quickly you can personally learn, not for safety or for, uh, you know, personal relationships. I love it, man. That's great advice. Your previous self thanks you, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it took me way too long to learn that. 
Um, but I, I think it's, it's an important lesson and, and I see it in, in entrepreneurs or I, you know, back when I was doing venture full time, uh, I, I saw it in a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, that, that they were, were not afraid to, uh, kind of take those risks and really put themselves out there as a first time entrepreneur. And, and those were always the ones that I wanted to, to bet on and the ones who I think in the end have, uh, been the ones who have been driven to succeed. Yeah. Some people, they just have that fire in them where they just get up and go, 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 and nothing in the world could possibly slow them down. Yeah. My filter now is do I want to, or would I ever bet against you? <laughs> oh my God, dude, let's get some pot. You need some Tony Robbins, Brendan. <laughs> we'll get some, we'll get some positive in your life, my friend. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like uh, I like survivorship. I think I, I think uh, you know there's there's some kind of irrational exuberance around uh, around fundraising and and you know fundraising as a startup milestone and uh, and I, I think that it's the the companies and uh, the the founders who actually are kind of shaped by the kinds of ordeals they have to go through when they don't have that easy path when, you know, they, they're not like, you know, fresh out of school from, you know, a, a top university and somebody gives them like hands them three or $4 million and says, go build something cool. I, I it's the opposite. The people that I've met who have been, you know, people who are starting companies after, you know, five or six different, uh, you know, uh, five or six different tours of duty in that space uh, who have really interesting life experiences. Um, one of my co-founders of my, uh, um, of the, the venture fund that I co-founded, uh, you know, he had come to America with nothing for medical treatment and he, uh, he built his whole life up from scratch from that. And, and those people have such an interesting, uh, outlook. I can, I can never fully relate to it myself, but, uh, they just have such an interesting outlook on life and, and they've learned positivity. I think, uh, that, that to me, uh, that's what makes them survive when, when other people, you know, kind of decide to give up and go join Google. Yeah. So when, when I did this book, I was, I had the editor kind of like interview me, asking me questions while we were finishing the book up. And they mm -hmm. started asking some like really like deep personal stuff because they like wanted to dig in for some reason. <laughs> I'm like, all right. <laughs> so they're asking me like, oh, you know, like why? Because like to me, I'm me, right? You know, but they're asking like, why don't you stop? Like what makes you keep going? Like what, why are you the way you are? And I'm like, dude, I don't know. And so they were asking me questions about like childhood. And then they, uh, the, the ultimate thing that they came to was when I was like 13, I got hit by a car and I was in a wheelchair for a year and I had to learn how to walk again. And then halfway through my rehab, I fell and rebroke my legs and I had to learn how to walk like all over again. And that oh, was wow. like this big, big, long two, three year chunk of my life. And then they were like, well, now you have the hips and legs of an 80 year old woman. And like, you're not going to be able to do sports. And then I ended up joining the football team. Right. And then like, I just kept, you know, pushing forward. And then I'm like, yeah. you know what, maybe that's where I learned how to be positive. Yeah. That's, that's pretty inspirational to, to make it through that. I can't imagine it. 
Well, I mean, like, it's just like you can either it's it, it sounds like cool. But like when you're sitting there in the wheelchair, like you just don't want to be there. <laughs> you're oh, like, yeah. what do I have to do? Like, what do I have to do? How do I get up and not be in this thing? Like, where's the path? Because you get down about it a little bit. I actually ended up getting really overweight. I blew up to 300 pounds. So I was like in the wheelchair, broken legs, got depressed, got really, really <laughs> overweight. And then like, I'm really, I'm in shape now, you know, but, uh, yeah. it was like this whole like mess of a decade for me. And then I'm like every single day, I'm just like, at least it's not, at least I'm not 300 pounds in a wheelchair. Can't walk anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's uh yeah, that sounds like quite something to, to have for a while. It's like, it's like my flight's late, but I can walk. <laughs> yes, I win. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, back, I, you know, it's funny. I, I think, uh, you know, it, it's that thing that lets you, uh, that l- lets you kind of go that extra, extra mile. I have a similar, you know, what you were saying about the flights late. Once I, I woke up with the, I was in college. I left college for a semester to start a software company. And, uh, and at that time, uh, y Combinator had just launched and I was invited to a private reception in, in Cambridge. And, uh, and I missed the flight because I had the flu and I literally made it out later that day to make it to the reception that night. Cause I was so determined to get there. And I think it, it like, you made if, it happen, man. Yeah. If I hadn't gone through like the, all the ordeals leading up to that, of like how hard it was to start uh, start a, a company and and kind of like learn entrepreneurship from scratch. I don't I don't think I ever would have kind of uh, used that experience to to make it, despite probably getting half the people on the plane sick. <laughs> You're like a little terrorist, Brendan. <laughs> yeah. Now, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh, what was I doing to other people? <laughs> the important thing is you made your Y Combinator. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh man, we'll edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> I just got an email from your PR person. They say, edit, edit, edit. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It, it's funny because I got to meet oh. Steve Wozniak at that event. So it was like, you know, every moment was oh, worth yes. it. And he remembers you as the jerk that got him sick. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Brendan. So it was cool meeting Steve Wozniak, the Woz. It was. I I don't it's funny, that night is a total blur. I got into a long discussion with somebody, uh I think one of the founders of Abbey Word, the like uh Linux uh um like word competitor. <laughs> um but I, uh-huh. I sort of like that's what I remember from the night because I had a fever the like after that and uh, You were like tanked on NyQuil. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. That, that night I, I had to go outside the city to like crash at a friend's place in his, uh, his apartment, uh, near his c- campus. And I just was, I was like out of it for the next two days. <laughs> you're just stumbling around the city. Everyone thinks you're drunk, but you're just sick. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there was no Uber back then. <laughs> oh no. All of a sudden you see, I'm going to see Brendan like writing spot. By like Boston Dynamics, have <laughs> drunk Oh my god! There's the use for them, by the way. Little Ubers, they can just ride the dogs on, put little saddles on them. Now that's something I could get behind. They're almost big enough for that. I have a friend who has a, a, a robotics company here. They make this 
robot that carries cargo for you rolls behind you called Gita. Um, and Gita? yeah, and, and it's funny because it's big enough that I always want to put like a saddle on it and ride it. <laughs> All right, wait, wait, wait. Who's this guy? Who's this friend or girl? Uh, her name is Sasha. Um, and uh, it's it's Piaggio Fast Forward that makes it. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't even know about it. Yeah, it's uh, let me see if I can paste into the, the window a, a link to a video um, that she had. Um, let's see, because the, the thing is, it, it like it, the demos they have are literally it like carrying your shopping with you. It has this auto follow technology. You put like a little thing in your pocket and it follows you around with obstacle avoidance. Oh, my goodness. I'm in love. Let's see, media. Of course, it's an actual media page. Um, this is the actual website, though. Gita. Oh, man. Introducing Gita. Oh, wow. Hold on a second. A lot of up, up close shots. Give me the big picture. Yeah, the big picture. I'll do a scroll down. Uh, yeah, the problem is a lot of the videos on LinkedIn, I don't actually know how to share them out of LinkedIn. You can't really at all. Yeah, and so she had a video she posted. Uh, there's this very kind of well-known bartender uh, in in Boston that a lot of the startup community knows well. And and he used one of these to uh, propose uh, to his girlfriend. And so they had a video of their first Gita oh, proposal. Wow. <laughs> what a... I love this guy. Oh, man, the lights on it. Yeah, it is honestly... It's a... You know, the, the company is Italian. They make the scooters. And this is their robotics division that they put in Boston. And, and so it's got Italian styling. And I, I think that kind of makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, I'm looking at it right... It, you know what? It does feel very Italian style. It's that... that, that plastic stuff that like hard the coating of it reminds me of like the little italian cars right yeah exactly oh that thing is so smart can it do stairs though i don't think so no it's okay v version two it's coming it's coming put it in the pipeline yeah we have a we have a pivotal story for it or an epic we have an epic <laughs> just the stairs <laughs> they, I, I remember um, they brought one up on stage at the the same the robotics conference I, I was speaking at, and, and they definitely uh, they definitely used a ramp on the stairs. So, oh, what what conference was had that? Some limitations. Uh, that was the uh, Robo Madness uh, put on by Xconomy. What, what what that sounds amazing, Robo Madness. Yeah, every every year. Well, you know, iRobot is nearby, and yeah. Boston Dynamics is nearby, and you've got all this. So there's so many robotics companies around here. Uh, they put this on, and uh, they basically get a bunch of people talking about uh, AI and robotics. And like last year, Stephen Wolfram talked, and the founder of Boston Dynamics uh, talked, and the CTO of uh, of iRobot. So it, it was it's. It's a pretty good conference, and they they held it last year at least at Google, so there were great facilities for it. We got I gotta be calling these people, and then I was real proper English. I need to call these individuals. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I got excited for some reason. I, I I need to call these people and say I need your like iRobots and what what does iRobot produce that's really ridiculous and cool. Um, I mean. I think it's been normalized, right? They they mainly produce the Roomba and all of its ilk. 
Um, oh. But they, their military robotics division split off uh, from the company thanks to an activist investor. So now there's like another iRobot that just makes all the things like Mars rovers and and uh, like bomb, uh, you know, bomb diffuser robots. Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult from like a PR standpoint when they're like, we're going to clean your floors and kill people. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's I, tough. <laughs> yeah, I, I, had a, I had a chance at a dinner to sit next to the inventor of the Roomba and he was like a very down to earth kind of was like guy. And uh, he was telling me about his new project and he's launched it now. I forget what it's called, but he wanted to make a robot to automatically do your gardening for you. Oh, yeah. And he's launched it now. So there's another company now, another like iRobot for gardening. Oh, of course. I want to, if I were sitting next to him, I'd be like, hey, so uh, how'd this come about? He'd be like, it's the only chore my wife gave me. So I automated it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Wow, Brendan. I love talking with you, dude. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, this is amazing. It's real simple. Thank you so much for listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Share this. Get the word out. Thank you guys so much. I couldn't do it without you. I appreciate it. You guys are the absolute best.